So I appreciate the opportunity to be here tonight and to be around the altar and to be around God's word. Um, we got a, we were having a great time in our Bible study in First Samuel, uh, moving uh, slowly but surely. We've covered uh, every chapter so far. Now we're in chapter eight. Uh, as we kind of get into really what's going to be the heart of the story, we've been introduced to Samuel. We've seen how Samuel is, uh, is, is, is a powerful figure meeting Israel at this crisis, calling them to turn to the Lord. But the m- main part of the story really is Israel becoming a kingdom. And as you might would suspect, <laughs> you can't have a kingdom without a king. Of course, Israel already had a king. They just didn't realize it or they didn't acknowledge the king that they had. We'll get to that in just a minute, but this is the chapter that's really a turning point. It's really a pivotal moment in Israel's history, really world history, as the world would look different right after um, or after the events and after the request of this chapter. So if you have a Bible and you've opened up to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to read um, most of this chapter right up, right out, right, off the, um, right out of the gate. Uh, we'll skip a little bit in the middle, but I wanted to read it. Go ahead and read uh, what God's Word tells us, and then we'll talk about uh, three major, major subjects that are contained in this chapter tonight. So uh, God's Word says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. That I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt. Even to this day which, uh, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So if you read verses 10 through verses 18, Samuel warns them uh, about the, uh, the ramifications and the consequences of having a king. And, and those are just some of the, the kind of the top level broad things they should be concerned about. And we'll get to those in future chapters. Down in verse 19, he says, or the scripture says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will or we want to have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. You've heard that a couple times, haven't you? That we might be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and re- Heeded them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. He dismissed them, disgusted at them, but determined to give them what they wanted. So tonight's text really is one of the most important moments in Israel's history. Um, And it's going to change Israel forever. It's going to change the world forever because uh, we know that from the throne of Israel comes a savior into the world. Now, it's remarkable that even though what God 
permits in this chapter was not his perfect will, and we'll talk more about that later, even though what God allows in this chapter was not his perfect, best, ideal will, God still works out for the good. Even though that they were never meant to have a king, but then he gives them a king, it's from that kingship, it's from that throne that he, of course, eventually brings a savior, of course, showing that God is still in control, even though it seems as if he kind of throws his hands up in this chapter. Uh, we're going to touch more of that, more on that, and more on that uh, subject throughout the next several chapters. But, but first, I want to talk about the way that Israel functioned as a nation in the days of 1 Samuel up until this chapter, uh, or up until the few chapters that follow. I want to talk about how Israel was established under Moses and Joshua and how they functioned after the conquest and until these first few chapters of First Samuel. So uh, this is what's often referred to as the Judges era. The Judges era, which is a period where the nation was ruled by judges. And it wasn't really ruled by an iron fist or like someone from a throne with a scepter. It was more or less oversaw or more or less looked after by these judges. But if you know the story, Moses, Joshua, they established the nation of Israel with a very unique government structure. If you read the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, you get, a kind of, you get an idea about what the government was supposed to look like for the nation of Israel. Essentially, you know, our nation has these documents that were uh, that were drafted and that are kind of served to, to, to give our nation its government and give our government its, its shape and its form, um, the, whether it's the, the Constitution and all the different documents that, that accompany it. Um, essentially, Exodus through Deuteronomy are kind of like the constitution for the nation of Israel, ancient Israel, that is. Um, and you can read those documents and you can see how God desired the nation to function and how he was organizing them around certain laws, certain rules, certain practices, and so forth. So unlike every other nation in the world, Israel was not to have a king. Israel was not to have a living, breathing man as their king because God was their king. And it wasn't just supposed to be some cute spiritual confession like, oh yeah, God's our king, wink, as if, hey, we don't really acknowledge that. No, they were literally supposed to um, submit themselves every single day to the unseen God who had made himself known through signs and wonders. They were supposed to conduct their lives and Israel was supposed to conduct itself as if God was their true one and actual king as real and legitimate as any other king of any other nation. Israel was supposed to be a nation accountable to God, governed by his law that took care of his people. That's what you get if you read Exodus through Deuteronomy. That's what Moses in his writings in the scriptures uh, were, were given to Israel to do, to establish Israel as a nation under God, governed by law that was all about taking care of and the good of his people. So three things Israel had to keep in mind, and they would always be successful. It was God's throne, it was God's law, and they were God's people. If they kept God's throne at the center of their lives, if they kept God's throne at the center of their nation, they did not bow to a physical king, they didn't go to a physical capital city and see a king parading around or sitting on the throne. They looked up to the heavens and they knew that God was their king, and God gave them his law. They were accountable to him. His law was what governed them, and his people, the nation of Israel, they were always supposed to do things and conduct themselves with a lifestyle that was benefiting and good for all of his people. So if Israel remembered these three things, they would be a successful nation. They would be the most successful nation. 
Story goes, Israel did not bow at God's throne. Uh, they threw off their accountability and, you know, they couldn't see him, so they forgot about him. They didn't have a physical king, so quickly they forgot that he was their king. And by doing so, they did not submit to God as their king. They did not serve God as their king. But, and they didn't think this would happen, but it always does. When they did not make God their king, they simply traded him for another king. Because you and I are creatures and we need to be ruled. We need to be led and guided and directed. And when Israel did not serve God as king, they found themselves serving some other, some lesser, some inferior king. And that's the story of Judges. The story of the book of Judges is that Israel continually found itself enslaved to rival nations. We just read about that with the Philistines that came in and took over for a season. Uh, again and again, Israel faced, themselves, faced this situation where when they did not serve God, they were serving some other lesser king. Judges 3 explains it this way, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. The people of Israel served that king for eight years, and, and this is just a snapshot of what would go on continually during this period of time. They did not serve God as king, and they found themselves enslaved to some lesser king. When you do not serve God, you will find yourself serving some lesser, inferior unloving, unmerciful God. It's just how our nature works. God raised up these judges, however, because he was compassionate and because he loved Israel. He, they were meant to lead the nation back to God to be submissive and faithful to God. Judges also explains that for us. Judges chapter 2 says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. They went after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And if you read the whole book of Judges, it's just this cycle over and over and over again. And it spills over into the days of 1 Samuel. The last of these judges would end up being Samuel, who came on the scene when Israel was at its darkest, most bleak, hopeless place in the cycle. By this point, God had really stopped raising up judges, and even the self, they were either, either self-appointed or they were family-appointed judges that were as corrupt as the whole nation. Even Samuel, a bright spot, Samuel, obviously called by God, even the story says that even as he turned things over to his sons, they went after the nation. They became like the nation. They were corrupt. They were selfish. They were not serving the Lord. So as you can tell, Israel's at a very bad place. Samuel tried to lead them back. Uh, and and, and re with regard to his generation, he tried to lead them to the first time to know who the one true God was. But they just were not sincere and they were not serious. So finally... The people come together and come to Samuel. Now, they know Samuel. They know Samuel is a godly man. Samuel's a prophet. Samuel has been preaching about serving the one true God all of his life. But they come to Samuel not asking for spiritual guidance. 
And, and just to be very frank, they don't come as Samuel concerned about their spiritual health. They couldn't care less about God's original vision for the nation. The elders of Israel are looking at the landscape of the world. They're looking at how Israel is just this fledgling, you know, joke, laughing stock of a nation. And all they care about is this. All that's on their mind is Israel's viability and stability as a nation on the world stage. And this is where it always goes wrong for God's people. When we begin to look around at the world and think, are we as successful as them? Are we as popular as them? Are we getting the credit that they're getting? Are we being recognized like they're being recognized? Anytime that ever crosses your mind as a Christian, for you individually, for you as a family, for us as a church, anytime you ever start looking around at worldly institutions, at worldly systems, at worldly structures, at worldly nations, anytime you ever start looking around thinking, what do I look like compared to them? That's always going to lead you to a bad place. Because God never, ever, 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 ever wants us to compare ourselves to everyone else. Because we're not supposed to be like everyone else. And the moment we start thinking to ourselves, we need to be like all the other XYZ, nation, groups, people, families, whatever you want to say. The moment we start saying to ourselves, we want to be like everyone else is the first step in the wrong direction for any of us. The people didn't care about their spiritual plight. They can only see a nation struggling in every category. They don't want to negotiate with God. They don't care about their faith. They don't care about God's will for them as a kingdom and as a, as a you know, spiritual light. All they care about is moving on from that old pipe dream, that silly pipe dream. They want to be a nation that's legitimate. They want to be a nation that's good, that's, that's strong like other nations, that's successful like other nations. They want to be rich. They want to be prosperous. They want to be powerful. They don't care what God wants them to be. They just want to be like all the other nations. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to want to be like the others, isn't it? So they came to Samuel in chapter 8, verse number 5, and they say, look, you're old. Your sons are corrupt. We want a king. We want a king. We've always wanted a king because we, we want to be legitimate. We want to be respected. We want to be envied by the rest of the world. We want a king. And they say those infamous words, give us a king so that we can be like other nations. Anytime those words come out of your mouth, so that we can be like other fill in the blank. That's always should warn you that you're about to head in the wrong direction. This was the last thing that ever needed to come out of their mouths, that ever needed to come out of our mouths. But of course, it came from their mouth because it reflected their heart. They wanted to be like everyone else. They didn't see the need or the point of being distinct or the point of being unique and set apart for God as, uh, as his people. Now, I, I want to I talk about this for, for just a minute. There is in all of us this notion, like with the ancient Israelites, to have this same desire. We want to be like everyone else, do things like everyone else. But God's word clearly says to you and me, you are to be different, you are to be better. That is the scripture. If you want to summarize, what's the Bible say to us compared to the rest of the world? That we are to be different and unique and distinct and better, that we are not to be like 
the others. Now, I want to ju- jump in here and save us from some bad Bible application before we, we take this in a different direction. Because it is easy, and I want you to make, make sure you hear what I do say and, and make sure you, hear, you don't hear what I don't say because I don't want my walking out of here saying, did he really say that? It's easy when we, when we talk about Israel and we talk about Israel as a nation, it's easy to take our, you know, our mental pencils or our mental in our, in our mind, it's easy to say, okay, God is saying this to Israel, so how does this apply to us? And it's tempting to say, well, God is talking to Israel as a nation, so he must be saying something to America as a nation. But any time that we're trying to apply old to new, God's not really got a message for us as Americans here. The message is for us as Christians and as the church. Now, the reason I say that is, number one, there's a whole lot of Christians in the world that don't live in America, so I'm glad this doesn't just apply to America. And that's not me saying that we can't learn some things from Israel. We can definitely learn some things from Israel, but it's going to be hard for us to get this stuff implemented into our country, but it shouldn't be hard for us to implement this stuff into our churches. Does that make sense? That if if we think this this only works for us in our generation, if we draw a line around Israel and connect it to America, then we're going to be spinning our wheels a lot because we're not going to convince the country to do some of this stuff. But we should be able to get in our churches and convince the churches to do this stuff. Now, Israel is meant to be a picture of the church as the body set apart for God's glory. The church doesn't replace Israel by no means. God's still got a plan for Israel. But the church is a, is a global uh, idea of what God started out locally with the nation of Israel. But ancient Israel was never really meant to be a template for a modern nation. Would it be good if a modern nation followed Israel's model? Of course. Uh, but, but there's a lot of problems that come along with that. And I'll just address that really briefly. Uh, people love to pick and choose parts of the Israel model and say, well, America should do this. But, and, and, but the problem is people don't want to do everything that God told Israel to do. It would be great. And it would be great if we were a nation under God, governed by law, where everybody paid a flat rate tax and there was no way you could weasel or squirm or lie your way out of paying your taxes. That would be great. Oh my goodness, we'd have a great country. If everybody paid, it was 27%, which might make you fall over. You know, hey, I've tried to get by with as less as a few, as little taxes as I can. I don't blame you. But in, in Israel, everybody paid 27% tax. It didn't matter if you were a farmer or a politician, you paid the same tax. Now, most of that tax went to the temple. The temple and the government were adjacent. Again, it doesn't work that way in America. I understand that, right? But there were no billionaires not paying taxes in ancient Israel. There probably weren't many billionaires also. also. But the point of it is that it would be great if we all followed Israel's model and everybody was giving to, to, the, to the nation like they were supposed to. It'd be great if widows and orphans never went hungry. It'd be great if everyone worshiped together and prayed together. It'd be great if every 50 years, I mean, this, I love this part. It'd be great if every 50 years, all debt was washed away. You say, how would that work? Well, it would work because everybody was tithing and giving 20, 27%, not 10, 27%. It'd be great if every 50 years, all debt was washed away. It'd be great if every criminal, every criminal could find refuge in a sanctuary city where they would find true rehabilitation and see their lives change. It'd be great if everybody that came into the country found a a, a place and they weren't just in the middle of a political mess. It'd be great, wouldn't it? 
listen, there's no way that even conservative people in America would, 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 would vote for this stuff, much less the rest of the country. My point isn't to say that the model of Israel isn't perfect. It is. But if we only see this as something that God is saying to the nation of America, then we're never going to get this stuff to our, our, our modern practical lifestyles. Every once in a while, you hear somebody say that, you know, hey, Deuteronomy says this about Israel, so America should do this, but then they don't listen to everything else Deuteronomy says that America should do. So moral of the story, if somebody ran on a biblical platform, they wouldn't get 1% of the primary votes on either party. They wouldn't. They just wouldn't. They, I, I would vote for them. Everybody else would say, you're crazy, Justin, and maybe I am. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. But, but the good news is we're not beholden to America adopting this, the, these models. Whether America does or doesn't, doesn't matter. You as a Christian can, can follow the, the model of Israel through your partnership and through your membership and through your participation in the local church. And we don't have to worry about convincing the whole country. We just gotta try to convince each other in our local churches, which is, which is good news. The church should be ready to walk in Israel's footsteps in a heartbeat in bringing our, over the ways of Israel in practices and applications that can be translated from a nation to a community. And the good news is the New Testament does all this translating for us. The New Testament puts all this in words that we can understand and that we can apply it. In the days of Israel, Israel was a light in a dark world, a light amongst the nations. One nation shining forth God's light across every other nation. But the church is God's light within every nation. You see how it's similar, but also how it's different? Israel was one nation shining a light across all the nations. But the church is God's light in every nation. Positioned in place everywhere to infiltrate every kingdom, society, and culture. This is a message that we talk about all the time in any given New Testament book that we study. The church is a light. The church is salt. The church is refuge. It's commanded to spread the ethics of Christ to all people. But we don't do this by being like the other nations. We don't do this by being like all the other citizens. We don't do this by being like them. We do this by being a light unto them. Is that clear? Now, I want you to put a bookmark here in 1 Samuel and turn with me over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter writes to his audience about this very subject, about being a light, about infiltrating the world that they were in. And, and if you want to know how God envisioned the church to function on this planet, Peter does a masterful job at spelling it out in 1 Peter. We're going to look at verses 12 through, or verses 11 through 17. So Peter is writing to Christians who are in the Roman Empire. If you know anything about the Roman Empire, it was a bad place to be if you were a Christian. If you were a Christian living in the Roman Empire, you were probably going to be hung on a cross, fed to the lions, or beheaded. Not doesn't sound good, does it? If you were a Christian in the Roman Empire, you were probably going to be put in the middle of the, of the Colosseum and made sport of, and audiences were going to gather to watch you be systematically torn apart as entertainment. 
If you were a Christian in the Roman Empire, you might would think, I need to get out of the Roman Empire. Only problem is, Roman Empire was global. The Roman Empire was world-spanning. The only hope you had to get away from Rome was to run into the African desert. And if you ran into the African desert, you probably were going to die of starvation or be eaten alive. So you weren't really faring much better there. So Peter, who is about to be crucified upside down, about to be martyred for his faith, the Apostle Paul alongside him, about to be beheaded for his faith, they write to their churches, their New Testament audience, they write to the Christians in Rome about how they might live as lights in the world. And their, their, their message wasn't blend in and be like everyone else. The message wasn't then figure out some way to be accepted by them. The message wasn't run away and hide. The message was you are different, you are unique, you are distinct, and by being that light, you have a chance to change lives. You might not change the world. You probably aren't going to change the world, as in the government and the systems that are in place, but you can change somebody's life. You see where Israel went wrong? They weren't worried about the actual mission that they were on as a people. They were just worried about being the nation that was legitimate and and accepted and, and accredited by the rest of the world. And the New Testament wants us as Christians to never fall down that path. Look with me at 1 Peter 2. Peter says, Beloved, I beg you, verse 11, as sojourners or as exiles and pilgrims. Pilgrims means you're just passing through. You're not at home. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that the... When they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter's message is, hey, y'all, you're different. You're not going to follow the way of the world. You're not going to do what the world does, lust after what the world lusts after. You're going to conduct yourself honorably. You're going to be different. And when people point at you as if you're the problem, you are going to do good in a way that gets their attention. Now, verses 13 through 17 is kind of Peter's initial explanation of what it looks like to do good in an evil world. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent for him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish Man, you say, Justin, I know how to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men if I physically put them, if I physically shut them up, right? I mean, Peter, you're telling me that I just need to do good? If I just do good, I'll convince the world? Peter says, yeah. But what, that doesn't always feel like it's making an impact as, if, as sizable as we would like it to be. Peter says, verse 16 is free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for, for a vice, but as bondservants of God. Verse 17 is kind of his summary statement. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Honor the king that is threatening to put you to death. Honor the emperor. Now that's an extreme version of what God says to you and what God says to me. 
How can we make a difference in the world? Well, you don't, you don't make a difference by being like the world. You don't make a difference by wanting to be given the same credibility as the world or accepted like the world. You don't make a difference that way. Even, if you, even though your flesh might think that's how you make a difference. You don't make a difference by putting them in their place. You don't make a difference by being better than them or stronger than them or winning or you know, getting them out of office. You make a difference by being the light God's called you to be in the world he's placed you to be in. There's this movement within the church that thinks that if we don't somehow install our faith and our people into every office that we can't, we have no chance at making a difference. Listen, that's not the New Testament vision. Would it be great if Christians were installed and served in every office? Of course, that'd be awesome. But we are not at the mercy of that kind of takeover. You understand the message? We are not at the mercy of becoming like them or getting in the place of them. The Bible does not say that we are at the mercy of that kind of takeover. The Bible makes it clear that we can be a force for change in spite of what might work against us. Put it this way. The church does not need to take over from the top down. We are called to inspire and lead a makeover from the ground up. Does that make sense? That's the best way I can put it. The, the, the hope for our country, in which I don't really care about the country, I care about the church, because the church is going to be here long after the country. That makes sense? I don't really care about what's going on in the government. I care about the church. And you know what the hope for the church is? The hope for the church isn't us taking over from the top down and making all society walk in step and, and, and do what we want it to do. That might happen. That probably won't happen. The hope for the church is from the ground up, make a difference. By making the presence of God known and felt and seen in, in our world, he will change lives. So this goes back to that line. This goes back to that line that Israel came to Samuel with. Make us like everyone else. Listen, everybody, everyone else thinks that unless they get power, unless they are successful by the world's metrics, they'll never make a difference in the world. This is why the prosperity gospel takes such, takes such a force in the church because the people, Christians think, well, we've got to be like the rest of the world. We've got to be rich and powerful and strong. And if we, don't, if we aren't those things, what good are we? We are not beholden to the world's rules. And if the devil convinces you that you are beholden to those rules and those, those, those metrics and those, you know, those, those limitations, then you'll never be used for anything because you'll never be what the world is. You're not supposed to be. Listen, our Savior, our Savior literally laid down all of his power and gave up his life to start this movement. And what did that lead to? The salvation of the world. Now, I know people roll their eyes and think, well, Justin, if you're asking me to lay my power down and asking me to give up my life, that'll never work. That sounds foolish. But isn't that the message of the New Testament? Isn't that the message of the cross that we're called to bear? Isn't the cross supposed to be the way of every Christian? That's foolish, though. Paul says, of course it is. The word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing to those who are lost, but if you're saved, that's the power of God. That's how the world was saved and will be saved, by people who bear crosses. He goes on to say, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The apostle Paul called back to Jesus, most defining moment, and he says to you and he says to me, 
He said, the, he said to the Philippians facing persecution, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And of course, we know what that led to. And he says to you and he says to me, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you are to shine as lights in the world. Paul says, I know it's crooked. I know it's twisted. And that's why you are placed there as a light in the world. Church, if you want to know who God wants us to be and how he wants us to live, this is it. We are not to be like other nations. We are not to be like other people. We are not to be like the world. Yeah, that also means that we don't engage in sin or filth. That also means that we don't f- succumb to the, uh, the lust of our flesh. But the message here is more about how we operate, our mission, our mindset in our lives. Israel wasn't just wanting to be like the other nations in terms of behavior. They were already behaving like other nations. They wanted to be like the, have the structure and the aspirations and the power that the rest of the world has. There is in all of us this temptation to want to be like the world, chase after what the world chases, but that is the opposite of what we're supposed to chase after. We don't have to be like other nations, institutions, in order to be successful. If we adopt their ways, we will certainly be unsuccessful. We take our cues from our master and our savior, the one with nail-scarred hands who every metric of this world would say he was a loser, but based on the power of the universe currently, he is the victor. He sits on the throne of God. He is the one with everlasting glory, not anybody in this world. As tempting as it is to compare ourselves to the world when it comes to money and power, this goes for you personally, it goes for our churches organizationally. We cannot take the bait, we cannot be distracted. We aren't supposed to be like other nations, like other groups, like other people. We are supposed to be different. And that's what God told Israel when he called them. He said in Deuteronomy, for you're a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number. It was not because you were mighty. It was not because you were rich. It was not because you were successful. He chose you because you were the fewest of people, the weakest of people. God gets glory when he does the most amazing things the most unexpected, unlikely people. Keep that in mind. Is, that, is, that, is my message that, well, God's never gonna let you be successful or powerful or rich or famous? I don't know. I don't know. I don't read about a lot of very successful, powerful, famous people in the Bible. The ones that were rich and powerful, they ended up making a fool of themselves if you know the stories of David and Solomon. So I don't really know if I wanna be like them. The people in the New Testament who, uh, who are regarded as the people we should be like they certainly weren't successful or powerful or famous by the world's standards but who are we talking about 2,000 years later it's them right not only are we tempted when everyone else everyone around us does things differently and seems to live by different rules than us sometimes we get our feelings hurt when we when they get by with things that we'd never get by with can you relate to that as we wrap up 
Look back at 1 Samuel 8, and we'll, we'll close around this, around this thought. Sometimes we get our feelings hurt when we look at the world, and, and we're trying to live different, and we're trying to do right, and the world is getting by with it, and we would never get by with it. Our own conscience wouldn't let us get by with it, or somebody else would tattle on us. You know how it works. Sometimes we also take things personal when the world doesn't respond. Have you ever tried to do something good and right, and you want people to recognize you for doing something good and right, and they don't, and then you get your feelings hurt? You get offended, and then you cross your arms and think, well, I'm never going to do that again. And you think, well, who was I doing it for in the first place? I think God's word to Samuel can help encourage us on this thought. Because on one note, the people of Israel want to be like the rest of the world. Samuel's trying to be like he should be, trying to be righteous and holy and good. And he gets his feelings hurt when Israel doesn't respect that and walks away from that. And in verse number seven, God says, Samuel, I know, I already know. I already know what you're dealing with. I already know what's going on in your heart, Samuel. You're, you're less concerned about the people of Israel doing, going in the wrong direction than you are hurt that they've rejected you. And he says to Samuel, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me. Now, I don't think God's just saying that to make Samuel feel better, but I also think God is saying that to make Samuel feel better. Does that make sense? He's not lying to Samuel because they had rejected him. But I think God is trying to say to Samuel, Samuel, you've got to have some thick skin. Because if you're going to do the right thing in a world full of people doing the wrong thing, you can't be so sensitive. The reality is that a majority of people are going to be unfazed by our attempts to live holy and do the right thing. Unfortunately, a large number of people are going to be rude and disrespectful and even offensive to us as we try to do the right thing. So back to that thing in First Peter where Peter says, you know, love everybody and honor the people and love the brotherhood and, 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 and respect the emperor. And you're thinking, I'm going to respect the emperor and he's going to kill me tomorrow. I don't think so. If we're going to stay focused and not get discouraged, we've got to learn to put blinders on as we serve the Lord. You know, blinders like a horse race, right? You can't look to the left or the right. Because if you do, you'll start going to the left or the right. One of the most important verses, set of verses that you should commit to memory is found in Colossians 3. Write these down and look at them later. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's not saying that you shouldn't care about the people that you're doing things for or that you shouldn't try to be the best person to them for the sake of, doing good to them. Paul's trying to tell us that if your mindset is I'm doing this for people, then you're going to be beholden to their approval or you're going to be discouraged by their rejection. But if you're doing what you're doing because you're serving the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance and from the Lord you will be rewarded, you are serving the Lord your God, you are serving Jesus Christ. So as you're trying to be different, as you're trying to live righteous and good and holy, as you're trying to not be like the rest of the world, you must do it unto the Lord, not unto men. And you must know that he's going to reward you. And when people reject you and people are disrespectful to you, you've got to know this. The wrongdoer will be repaid. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. But there should be an asterisk on that verse. The wrongdoer might not be paid back in this life. The wrongdoer might get by with what they're doing wrong until they stand before God. But you've got to let God be God and you can't be so obsessed with people getting it right now because they might not get what they deserve right now. 
And be thankful you don't get what you deserve right now, right? Amen. Be thankful all of us, none of us get what we deserve right now because we wouldn't be saved if we did. So the point, if you require validation or affirmation from people for every good work that you do, you're never going to make it in this life. (laughs) You're not. You're not really doing things for the Lord if you need people to approve you or acknowledge you. I know that, I don't want to sound mean, but that's just, that's just true. Everyone gets their feelings hurt. I, I believe me, you won't go home with me on Sundays. Everyone gets their feelings hurt. People can be the worst. Not y'all, but some people. Try being in ministry. You spend 40 minutes, 45 minutes pouring your heart out. You spent 40 hours preparing a message. And people will definitely let you know when they don't like what you said. And sometimes it's the way they let you know that they didn't like it or the way they let you know that they did like it that lets you know they didn't like the other 15 messages you preached before. My point is everybody has a way of, of sometimes not always communicating the, the, the greatest appreciation. That's just, this happens in life. People are people, right? And people do it without even thinking twice about it. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter, I promise. I've been doing this for 13 years on a weekly basis and when you put yourself out there, you're going to get your feelings hurt. People are going to take things the wrong way, or you're going to take things the wrong way. That just happens. I've been, I've been living as a Christian for most of my life in this world, and I, I, you know, the world is not always going to coddle us and pamper us. Usually it's doing the opposite. So God tells Samuel, Samuel, you got to have thick skin. When you get offended, when you get hurt, when you get disappointed, give it to me. Give it to me. And this, this is such an important practice. Jesus can handle the offense. You can't. Jesus can handle somebody insulting him. Jesus can handle someone offending him. You can't. We can't. We are babies. I'm just being honest. We're we're babies. We're petty. We're temperamental. And God is telling Samuel, Samuel, give it to me. I can handle it. If we dwell on the things that are done against us or the way things are taken that we do the wrong way, if we dwell on that, we're going to get mad, we're going to get mean and bitter and hateful, and we're going to do something childish. We're going to quit or we're going to do all sorts of things that we shouldn't do. And that's just how it is. So give it to Jesus. Learn how to trust him with your good works. If you get rejected, just know that God accepts you and God's going to one day reward you. But the, the short story is, if you need man's approval or applause, then you aren't trusting in God as much as you need to be. Does that make sense? So we're gonna stop there. So we've seen two sides of the coin. We've seen Israel wanting to be like other nations. And we've seen Samuel discouraged, upset, because he wasn't appreciated, he wasn't respected for the effort he was putting out. I don't know which side you're on. I don't know if you're on the side of, hey, I wanna be like, I wanna be like the world. I wanna win. I wanna be powerful. I wanna... If that's your temptation tonight, could you just listen to the word that God has given you tonight to, to, see the, to see the calling he's put on your life, to see the pathway he's asked you to take? If you're on the side of Samuel and you get your feelings hurt a lot and you get discouraged because you're not respected or appreciated or affirmed, I get all that. I'm right there with you. Would you let God take that stuff from you and let God be the one that validates you and affirms you? And would you, let God let you, would you let God approve you and make you feel accepted and know that I'm doing this for him? I might not be recognized. I might not be respected. 
but I'm not gonna go the other way. I'm gonna keep on this path. My eyes on him, my heart focused on him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this great opportunity you've given us tonight to be in your house. Thank you for your word that gives us uh, clarity, conviction, that guides us and directs us in a world that's trying to take us in all sorts of, of opposite, uh, inferior ways. Lord, use us tonight to be lights in our world. Use us to make a difference in a world, even when we, all, even when we feel like we're not making that much of a difference. God, strengthen us, guide us. Lord, help us to, to have thick skin. Help us to turn these things over to you that we might stay focused and straight on our path to honor and glorify you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your church. Use us to make a difference in our world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.